All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, one of your hosts, and with me today is my good friend and co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, dude? Hey, Josh. How are you, man? I'm good. Just kind of hanging out. Yeah, you staying staying sane in quarantine still? (laughs) I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Uh, Yeah. Been doing a lot of reading. Uh, way too many Zoom calls. I feel like my job is now to be on Zoom calls all all day, forever. <laughs> um, and also, I've been playing this really cool video game called Days Gone. For people who like PS4, I think it's a PS4 exclusive. So, cool. Yeah, Great I mean, stuff. I was I was I was gonna ask, what's life like in quarantine, but without any children? Oh, <laughs> because I because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I feel like life in quarantine without children might be more glamorous. There's there's the, the possibility that there could be more glamour in quarantine without children. But I could be wrong. So Yeah, I don't know if glamorous is the right word. I mean, uh, <laughs> we have a roommate. Well, you know our roommate, Brandon. He lives with yeah. Noel and I, and he's kind of like having a little kid around. You know, <laughs> and the best thing is yeah. he's probably not going to listen to this. So he doesn't even know we're making fun of him, but his, he might hear you right his fiance listens. And so she'll know that we made fun of him. She'll tell him. I or hope she'll so. just laugh and keep it to herself. That's true. That's probably what she'll do. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I've just noticed like with with kids around. I mean, yes, obviously, it's a little more challenging because there's more people to take care of. But actually, like yesterday was Easter um so that gives you guys context when when we're recording this and uh it was just an absolutely beautiful day like 90 percent of the day and the day before that was like 65 70 sunny the entire day and so we just like spent the day outside yesterday we were doing like we had this massive burn pile because we live on 10 acres and so we were burning all this different brush and like there was like a bunch of people cutting down stuff in our family because we all it was no no one came over for Easter, by the way. If you think I broke quarantine, I just live in a really big house with a lot of people. And so people came uh, outside and we were cutting things down and burning things. And then, Josh, I came inside and you'll never guess what I found after going through all that wood and brush. A uh, snake. A, a tick. Lizard. Oh, great. Way to go. Yeah. 
it was like crawling around on my waistband. It hadn't gotten in yet, so I like plucked it off my skin. My dad like <laughs> like so broke gross. it. Like it was so gross. I hate mm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I know we didn't come on here to talk about ticks. No, so that's yeah. Know. Thank God because <laughs> that. I mean, listeners, if if you're here to hear about ticks, then I apologize. You're gonna have to go ahead and <laughs> shut off right now. Or so- the. And we're also not going to be talking about the TV show, The Tick, from the 90s. We're not going to be talking about that either. Nope, not at all. Actually, what we're going to be doing today, Marty, is continuing uh, the miniseries that you and I had kind of come up with uh, about atonement. We thought, oh, you know, Easter, like you said, happened yesterday. And uh, a lot of our listeners had kept asking questions like, what about atonement? What about atonement? What about atonement? Um, And the honest answer was like, well, I have no idea what I think about atonement because – there's all the ideas about atonement, <laughs> so yeah. I don't want to give just one. So we came up with this mini series where we're doing three episodes with three different perspectives and three different uh, theologians, and so today is no different. So we're recording our second of our three interviews, and today our guest is Dr. Joshua McNall. Josh, how's it going? It's going well, guys. Good, to, good to be here with you. Yeah, yeah thanks. You thanks for coming and uh, not hanging up our Skype call. When we started talking about burning things and ticks. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, I'm from uh, I'm from Oklahoma, so we have a we have a long history of uh, burning things and ticks. So it's nice. like, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you understand because man, it it, it would have been re- really weird the rest of the call if you're like I've never seen a tick. I don't know what those are, and and so like stop talking about weird stuff. <laughs> Sweet. Well, uh, Josh, before we uh, jump in and, and talk about atonement, um, we have a question that we like to ask everybody when they come on the show. Um, it's a super important question. It kind of sets the tone for the rest of our conversation together. Um, and that question is this. Who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, man, my favorite ice hockey team. Being from Oklahoma, that's going to yeah. be a really easy answer. Yeah, we don't have a long history of ice hockey teams. <laughs> um, well, I used to live in Michigan. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, I suppose what are the Red Wings, Detroit? Is that is that the yeah. team there? Yeah. Yeah. You could say the Northern Michigan Wildcats, and I would have been your biggest fan. Okay. Because <laughs> that's where I went to college. So. Okay. Sweet. Yeah, I'm not a big ice hockey guy, but I'll say I'll I'll say the Red Wings just because I used to live in Michigan for for at least a little while. It's a solid choice. There's a lot of good history with Detroit. They were really yeah, good was, for a really long time. Like like 29 years in a row or, or something like that. They yeah. made the playoffs. That's Some, something impressive. So that's that's quite that's quite the record. <laughs> Sweet. Well, uh, thanks for for playing along and answering our silly question, Josh. Appreciate it. Um, Marty and I are both huge hockey fans, so we always like to, to throw that question out there. Um, but before we, one more thing before we jump into like our actual topic, um, just for people who, um, don't know you or are not familiar with your work, could you just kind of fill us in like, uh, who you are, what do you do? Uh, maybe a little bit about your faith upbringing, just kind of things like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I live in Oklahoma, a town called Bartlesville, Oklahoma, just north of Tulsa. And uh, I've been a professor for the last 11 years at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, which is a a private Christian university. And um, so I teach theology here and some Bible classes and also some ministry classes. And uh, my PhD is in theology, systematic theology. 
but I teach beyond that, teach uh, preaching, uh, some some Bible courses, and I'm also on staff as the associate teaching pastor at a local church, and oh, so sweet. I preach uh, preach once a month there, and I try to I try to keep a foot. Uh, kind of in both worlds, in the academy where I teach, and then also the local church um, where I'm on staff. And uh, so my my faith upbringing, I uh, grew up in Kansas and uh, was a pastor's kid, a small uh, Wesleyan church out in the country. And uh, I felt, you know, I can't remember a time when I didn't um, believe in Christ and uh, was kind of raised in the church. And um Obviously, I had to kind of wrestle with questions and doubts and um, and grow in my faith, but I felt a call to ministry uh, right at the end of high school. And so I came actually to the place I work currently, which is Oklahoma Wesleyan, and did a ministry degree here, met my wife here, and uh, went on and did a master's degree in theology in Massachusetts at Gordon-Conwell uh, Seminary. Hey, that's where I went. Really? Nice. Yes. Yeah, South Hamilton. So I lived there. Um, I lived actually on the Gordon College campus, you know, okay. in a house uh, by the road there. And uh, finished up my master's degree there in, oh, shoot, 2006. And then uh, got married to my wife, Brianna. We moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I was a pastor for three years. And then moved to Oklahoma after that, and I did a PhD uh, over in England at the University of Manchester. Ah, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, it's good to have a, a fellow GCTS grad here. I, I graduated in 2014 with a spiritual formations master's. Um, so it was a new degree around that time. So Well, that's awesome. So both you guys went to Gordon-Conwell, is that right? No, Just I Marty. did. Yeah. Just Marty. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Josh is Josh is uh, considering his options on where to go. Um, his options are going to be much more open now that it seems like a lot of schools are going to go more online. <laughs> so <laughs> he's going to be able to choose pretty much anywhere he wants. So yeah, yeah I'm a, um, the truth is I'm a faker, Josh. I don't have a seminary degree currently, um, although I have a lot of self-taught stuff, <laughs> and I all I. What's up? Oh, I was going to say, Josh is one of those people where um, he's going to, when he does finally go to seminary, he's going to fit right in. Um, not because he, you know, just kind of makes a lot of friends real quick, but because he's going to be like, oh, yeah, I read that book a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've already read that book. Oh, Have yeah, I, inter- I interviewed book? that guy on my podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly right. right. Exactly right. <laughs> so Josh, Josh is right up there. He's, he's no slouch uh, just because he, you know, didn't go to seminary or something like that. But um, I believe you. <laughs> so as we're kind of transitioning over to our official topic of the Day of, of Atonement, uh, so uh, Josh, can you just tell us what are we talking about when we talk about atonement exactly? Yeah. Well, I mean, atonement is essentially looking at um, the work of Christ to save, redeem, restore, reconcile. And so it's, it's Jesus's work to bring salvation and uh, and that's basically what atonement is is focused on. Great. And then uh, I guess a, a follow up question to that: Why is having a conversation about atonement important? Yeah, I mean it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, one of the most basic claims of Christianity is Jesus saves. You know, that, that's that's super important, super basic. 
And yet there's also questions that arise as soon as we say that Jesus saves. Some of those questions are, you know, like, how? How does Jesus save? Um, From what does Jesus save us? You know, um, what's the problem that atonement is is solving or dealing with? And so um, it's an important conversation um, because of the importance of Christ's work, but also the questions, the the critiques, the the issues that arise when we start to try to uh, unpack how exactly Jesus saves. Mm. Yeah, and I think, too, like, one thing um, that I know, you know, part of the reason uh, that I love looking into atonement, this is one of those topics that, um, like, I continue to find so interesting and fascinating and uh, really try to dig into is I feel like our understanding of atonement also is going to say a lot about um, what we think God is like. Mm-hmm. Or maybe uh, how we think, you know, what we think God is like probably um, is reflected in the, you know, particular atonement theologies um, that we choose to work with. Uh, but I think yeah. that plays a factor as well, um, at least for me. That's that's what I I I like in, in atonement theology. Yeah. Sweet. Well, so uh, Josh, you, in, in case you didn't know, you released a book <laughs> called. <laughs> The, the mosaic of its own myth. Um, surprise! We wanted to tell you, so we're we're, we're glad that we have that privilege. Uh, it was published by Zondervan Academic, um, and truthfully, I think uh, this is probably the most well-rounded book on atonement I have ever read. Um, oh well, wow. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, like way a lot. <laughs> well, thanks. I yeah. appreciate that. So, so thank you for writing it, um, and I'm excited to to talk to you about it. Uh, there was so many, um, I don't know. It, it was just a great read and I really enjoyed it. And if I ever am a theology professor one day, uh, this would be a great resource I would love to put in the hands of students. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, most definitely. And so, um, one thing that I really liked about your book, uh, too, is that, um, it was, it's different, uh, than a lot of atonement, uh, books. Typically, uh, people will try to uh, pick one uh, or maybe two that kind of go together, atonement theories, and argue like that's the only one and all the other ones suck. Um, or <laughs> or uh, they'll do uh, this idea that, oh, all atonement theories are great, like, you know, very kind of pluralistic. And so um, you don't do that in your book. And actually you kind of speak out against this idea of like, a reductionism and defensive hierarchy, and then like mm-hmm. a relativism as di- like a disconnected uh, plurality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. If you want to think about like a line, uh, you know, a, a sort of spectrum, a, a horizontal line, and it would have two extremes. You know, and one of those extremes, when we talk about atonement, uh, you just mentioned is reductionism, and that is reducing Jesus's work to save and redeem to just kind of one picture or one model or one theory. And so you pick your your model or your theory and maybe you pick, you know, uh, well, penal substitution, Jesus takes our penalty, right? Or you might pick um, moral influence, Jesus shows us uh, what God's love looks like. Or you might pick victory, Jesus triumphs, right? So what reductionism does is it just focuses on one piece of atonement 
rather than recognizing all of the many beautiful pieces that we see in the scriptures. And I think that's problematic because it's kind of a combative view of atonement, like the different aspects of Jesus' work are put into competition with each other as if they're, you know, vying for, for dominance or something. So that's reductionism on one end of the line. And if you think about the other extreme on the other end of the line, uh, is it's called relativism. Or I, I talk about it also in the book as disconnected plurality, where you just say, yeah, all the pieces of Jesus' work are important, but you don't actually try to show how those pieces fit together. And so you're left with just sort of a kaleidoscope, or if you want to use the analogy of like a puzzle, it's just dumping all the pieces out on the table and saying, yeah, they're all important, but not actually trying to see how they fit together. And I think they do actually fit together in a way to show us a more beautiful and compelling vision of Jesus. And so the title of the book is The Mosaic of Atonement, because unlike a puzzle, I think the purpose of Jesus's work is not for us to um, figure it out or to just apply our human cleverness, right? The goal of atonement doctrine is to, to drive us to worship and to thanksgiving for what God has done in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in a mosaic, all the pieces do fit together. But in the history of the church, at least in iconography and some of the great artwork of the church, the goal of that artwork is not to highlight just one piece or another or to solve a puzzle, but to direct our vision towards Jesus so that we can worship him uh, more deeply and, and passionately. And so that's, the, that's kind of the, the metaphor that the book works with, those, those two extremes, reductionism and relativism, and then this kind of middle ground where the pieces do fit together for the purpose of, of worship. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> I think the, the metaphor that you used throughout the book was uh, just so brilliant. Um, and I, I love the, the idea of, of the mosaic and also the one thing that really stood out to me and, and you just said this is that it's not like a, a tome is not like a puzzle to be solved, but rather uh, you point us to like a proper response is rather worship. Um, and that was just really helpful to me because in my journey thus far, all I've been trying to do is figure out how it works, <laughs> mm-hmm. which can sometimes we then forget the importance of the worship aspect. You know, mm-hmm. we, we live um, up here in our heads. I know listeners can't see me pointing, uh, <laughs> but a lot of times we don't let um, the things here go down here into our heart um, and then and go out from there. So uh, the metaphor, I think, was brilliant, especially as you uh, then extend that and you get into uh, you do you show basically four different uh, perspectives four different atonement theories or models um, in your book uh, to make up your mosaic. Um, but you, you tie in another metaphor of the body of Christ. And mm-hmm. so your, your mosaic is made up of the feet, the heart, um, the head, and the hands. And mm-hmm. so I thought um, that we could kind of uh, maybe just go through each one of those uh, four aspects, just kind of get like a general um, idea of uh, what they are um, and go from yeah. there because I think it would be super helpful. Uh, I know I was joking with you earlier before uh, we started recording that like we could do 
one whole podcast on each of the <laughs> yeah. the four elements because you you treated them so so well uh, in the book and so fairly and um, I loved how you know you brought forth um, like positives and negatives of both you kind of helped um, disband some like myths about various atonement theories like I you did such a great job treating all of them so fairly and then tying them together. Um, it's just, uh, I don't know. I loved it. I need to stop talking about how much I love the book and <laughs> move on. Um, so the first one, though, is the feet of Christ. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you said the feet is this word called recapitulation. So yeah. what the heck is recapitulation? <laughs> yeah, that's a big word. Um, well, first of all, the you know the body metaphor, it's nice when you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And, and the Apostle Paul came up with this great concept of the body the body of Christ, and I think he takes it from Jesus during his uh, Damascus Road encounter, but um, where each piece is distinct, but they're all connected, and they shouldn't be pitted against each other, right? And so, um, you know, the hand can't say to the eye or whatever, you know, I don't need you. And so I thought that was really helpful and applicable for atonement models, too. And so these four models, like you said, um, the first one, is recapitulation, and I and I connected that to the feet of of Jesus, and so recapitulation is just a big word that speaks to the way that Jesus saves us as a kind of true Adam, uh, a new Adam, a true Adam, the last Adam, uh, the second Adam. There's all these different sort of descriptors, but it's the idea that Jesus stands in a kind of continuity or relationship with Adam the uh, head of the entire human family. And so there's a guy named Irenaeus, who's a second century uh, church father, and he zeroes in on recapitulation. And this it's this big Greek word, anakephaliosis. And it basically means that Jesus relives or sums up the entire human drama faithfully on our behalf because he is the true human, the true Adam. And so, you know, why connect that with the feet? And the reason I connected it with the feet in my little metaphor is that the feet provide the foundation for everything else that comes on top of that or later. And I think some of the presuppositions of recapitulation provide the foundation for these other models. Um, And so, in other words, one of the ways that happens is that we have to answer this question in atonement doctrine. How can one person, one man act on behalf of the many? Right. And in, in certain models that becomes a big sort of stumbling block or question. Cause like specifically when you talk about Jesus taking our penalty, um, well, how can an innocent person justly stand in for the guilty and take their penalty, right? If, if that happened in our legal system and a judge just said, you know what, I'm going to punish this innocent guy in place of this terrible child molester, right? Nobody would ever say, oh, hallelujah, that is just and good. Thanks be to God, right? We would never say that because the idea is that to take the penalty for a guilty person is the very definition of something being unjust, and so how can Jesus take our penalty, right? And recapitulation helps, I think, with that conversation because it, in the scriptures, the head 
can act on behalf of the whole. In other words, the the sort of uh, here's a, a great example of that. David is the anointed king over Israel, and he goes out and fights on behalf of the entire nation, right? And what happens to him in that battle will be decisive for the entire nation. So the anointed king um, can act on behalf of the whole people. And I think Irenaeus is helpful here because he says that Adam wasn't just fashioned in the image of God sort of uh, generically, but Adam and the entire human race was fashioned in the image of Christ, right? So Christ is the perfect and true image of God, and even Adam was fashioned after the pattern or the mold of the incarnate Christ. So that means that at the deepest root, so here we come back to the feet imagery, right? Planted in the soil of sort of fallen Eden. At the deepest root of this expanding family tree that is the human race is not Adam, but rather Christ. And in the scriptures, um, the roots, right? Just as in sort of biology or, um, you know, with trees, the, tr- the roots supply the lifeblood for the branches. And what Christ accomplishes echoes on throughout history because he's the head of the entire human race. And so he can act on behalf of the whole. And that's a fundamental presupposition of recapitulation for Irenaeus. And it provides, I think, it provides kind of the foundation for all these other models that build on top of the feet, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, Kind of, it's like this this idea that you talk about somehow we are uh, bound up with Christ, bound up in Christ, something like that. Mm-hmm. Paul uses this kind of uh, strange language, and I thought um, your explanation of that was so helpful, especially with the idea that you mentioned of like penal non-transference, um, mm-hmm. which is what you talked about a little bit earlier about like how can one innocent person uh, stand in right. for the guilty. Um, and I think recapitulation definitely helps ground that idea mm-hmm. very much. So I, I found that mm-hmm. to be super helpful. Thanks. Yeah. Good. You know, and I was curious and I, I may ask about each one of the parts as we talk about it, just because sure. I'm curious to hear how this, to, how this plays out. Um, how does, this idea of, of recapitulation and the feet, how does that transfer over to worship? Yeah. You know, what, what, what does worship look like in this, in this, in this particular model? Yeah. I mean, I think probably in a, in a lot of ways, but um, the idea that Jesus is the true human, right? It affects our view of Christ, but it also affects our view of ourselves, right? We see both our fallenness, when we look at the true humanity that's displayed in Christ, but we also see our potential for, for glorification. Um, and so it helps us to worship because we see not just how far we fall short, but the potential for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, which I think results in thanksgiving and in the power of the spirit, it results in sanctification. Um, so seeing humanity, not just as this wicked, broken, you know, defiled thing, but humanity perfectly embodied by Jesus. That's, that's the goal to which we're being conformed, not in our own strength, but 
by the power of the Spirit. And I think recapitulation helps to lift our eyes to that um, perfect image, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And then uh, just out of curiosity, you know, just as we think about this idea, um, and I believe I believe you wrote about this uh, within this topic, do we have to believe in a literal Adam for a re- for a recapitulation to be uh, a model that we look to? Yeah, in the second chapter, I deal with a potential objection to this idea of Jesus as the true Adam, and that objection is science, and, and specifically recent genomic science that challenges the idea that there was ever a single Adam, so to speak, that is literally the the genealogical ancestor of the entire human race. And um, I'd survey all this scientific data, and it's um, it's probably the densest chapter in the book. Um, but the argument I come down on, and I don't really just, I don't just come on just, here's the one thing you have to believe. I basically try to say, yeah. here, are some, here are some basic boundaries for Orthodox Christianity, right? And then here's this space in the middle where you can be open to different views. And so I do think it is super important that, that we see um, the original goodness of God's creation and that evil comes in as an intruder, you know, like a housebreaker um, to God's good creation. And so I think it's very important that there is a historical fall from original goodness. Um, and so if you don't have that, then God is either the author of evil or evil is eternal or, you know, or either, or evil is just this sort of like dark side of God, like God, God has this sort of dark side. He's part good, part evil. Right. So a historical fall is really important for our view of God, like Josh was mentioning earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, but also for our view of uh, creation. So we don't end up with like a Gnostic view of, of creation as inherently evil or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I argue in that chapter is you don't necessarily need a view of Adam as the literal genealogical ancestor of every single uh, hominid or hominin in order to hold on to the biblical claim of a historical fall and that Adam is the head of all uh, image bearers. In other words, uh, some theologians posit, and I'm not necessarily arguing for for this. I'm just saying it works to to uphold sort of the biblical uh, theological requirements. Uh, they would say that Adam is sort of selected as uh, the image bearing head of all subsequent image bearers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so C.S. Lewis argues along these lines, lots of others, and so that um, sin doesn't have to be passed like a kind of venereal disease, right? Um, We can have other views of how fallenness works. Um, And so I basically, I don't say you have to believe this one view, but I do say that um, a literal Adam, so to speak, who um, is the head of God's image bearers is important, and a literal fall from an original goodness is important. And then there's some room to entertain different uh, views on what exactly that looks like in light of science and theology and biblical studies and and all these different fields. Mm. Thanks for that. Yeah, thanks. So um, we'll go ahead then and and move to the the next section, um, and it's it's closely connected again, like uh, all of the the parts here work together. 
Um, and that is the heart. Uh, <laughs> the beating heart, as you like to call it, which was a penal substitution or a vicarious judgment is another word you used for it or a phrase mm-hmm. rather. Um, and like, to be honest with you, before I read this section in your book, uh, it's the one I was most nervous to read because mm-hmm. uh, I am not the biggest fan of penal substitutionary atonement uh, mm-hmm. or specifically um, certain uh, ways that it has been uh, put forth. Uh, sure. But what I was rather pleased uh, to find was that um, I actually walked away after reading this section uh, with a greater respect um, for substitutionary atonement um, and actually a way that um, it actually makes sense and works. So I thought it was helpful how you, you kind of um, like shut down some of the craziness <laughs> around the, the model and kind of put forth um, something that I found uh, to be much more beautiful. So I appreciate that um, kind of a you know, helping me return to um, a healthy understanding of penal substitutionary atonement versus some of the more caricatures um, Mm -hmm. that you broke down. And so uh, just for starters, uh, when we say penal substitutionary atonement or vicarious judgment, uh, what is it that we're talking about? Yeah, it's really important to define that. And ironically, that's something that both adherence to penal substitution and critics of penal substitution often fail to do. Um, (laughs) They just just throw out that label and then they proceed as if we all know what we're talking about. And um, some views of penal substitution I would wholeheartedly reject because I don't think they're biblical and they they result in a kind of pagan view of God where God's this explosively angry deity that has to find somebody to vent his you know, sort of sadistic rage on or something like that. Um, but I do think there's a biblical account of penal substitution that is that is not that at all. And so maybe the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the label itself is triggering for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so that means we need to define it. And mm. so I've just zeroed in on three really simple, basic components of penal substitution. Um, the first is that there's a the, the notion of penalty, that Christ, in some sense, bears a penalty on behalf of others. And you could construe that penalty in different ways. You could say the penalty is death. You could say that it's um, the, the, the judgment um, of God upon human sin. You, you could say it's wrath, right? There's all different ways. But the bottom line is there's a penalty that is borne by Christ on the cross. Um, the second uh, second facet to the definition, I- in addition to penalty, is substitution, right? Something happens to Jesus that didn't happen to me, right? Or he acts in my place um, in some way, in, in a way that I didn't. And so I, I boil, it, boil it down to agency. He is the agent of salvation, not me, right? And the experience of um, the penalty, right? I didn't feel the nails go through my hands. Um, I didn't experience that that judgment, you know, as he did. Even though it is true, as Paul says, that I have been crucified with Christ, right? So there's an aspect of atonement in which Jesus acts in my place instead of me, and that's substitution. 
And there's also aspects of atonement where he acts in my place, bound up with me, right? Mm. And so we have to hold on to both, I think, substitution and uh, vicarious judgment or incorporation or, or the kind of union imagery. They're both there in Scripture, but we need to differentiate uh, where they're there. And so, so the first one's penalty. There's some sort of penalty that's borne by Christ uh, in my place. Second one, substitution. He's the agent of salvation, not me. And he experiences that, uh, that painful judgment, not me. And then the third area, so we've got penalty, and then we've got substitution. And then the third area is uh, what I call divine sanction, divine sanction. So in some way, God, the, the one God, right, because we're not pagan polytheists, the one God is sanctioning this atoning work, right? That doesn't mean that he's hovering over the cross, laughing and enjoying it in some sort of sadistic torture play, right? But God stands behind this work. Um, if you go to the book of Acts where, where it talks about according to his foreknowledge and his divine plan, right, Christ was crucified. So there has to be a divine sanction for this atoning work, even though we're not saying that God is somehow, you know, zapping Jesus with torture rays, you know, to get his to get his jollies or something so that he can forgive me. You know, that's that's abhorrent. Um, nobody, none of the early church fathers thought that, right? Um, and, and very, very few contemporary theologians think that either, right? So the three elements again, penalty, substitution, and divine sanction. But just like with the historical Adam debate, I think there's a lot of room within those, those fence lines, so to speak, for different people to flesh out um, biblical and theological positions that could all be called in some sense, penal substitution, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, you, you hinted at, at some of these caricatures, but I think part of the reason, uh, like you mentioned, that this, um, even just saying penal substitutionary atonement can be triggering, which I know for a fact, uh, some of our listeners, um, absolutely, they're going to be like, why are we talking about this? <laughs> yeah. But, um, it was super helpful to to see some of those caricatures kind of broken down um, because, I mean, this is this is the perspective I was taught growing up. Um, mm -hmm. And although this, again, is a caricature, what this is what I thought I ought to believe or what people were telling me I should believe is that um, we were created to be in relationship with God. Uh, we did bad stuff. This made mm -hmm. God angry at us. So God mm -hmm. turned his back on humanity um, mm -hmm. and then somehow wanted to find a way to restore relationship, but he had to, to, to vent his anger, his wrath uh, on somebody, and that somebody just happened to be his son. So lucky for us, you know, Jesus steps in the way, God punches him in the face, um, and then we're good to go. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how it had been articulated to me. Um, and, I mean, you break down those kind of caricatures uh, a bunch in the book, which I thought was super helpful. Um, but also one thing that I think people would point out too is a lot of times, um, and I don't want to do this as in like calling out a group of people or anything like that. Um, but this particular model often, at least in my experience, uh, falls into the category of the defensive hierarchy that you talked about earlier, where this is, I've been told this is the model of atonement. 
And if mm-hmm. I don't believe in PSA, I am not, I don't believe the gospel. PSA right. and the gospel right. have been conflated as the same thing. Right. And if I don't believe it, then I can't be a Christian. Have you right. experienced that at all? Yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, it's been really interesting when the, since this book has come out because I've been really fortunate enough to talk to crowds who are like rah 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 PSA, and then other podcast maybe and maybe like you guys I wouldn't I wouldn't say this of you necessarily because I don't know who are like really not big on PSA at all like don't like it and they've both extended invitations to talk to me about the book because I'm but I'm actually kind of in between those two camps yeah, right 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 <laughs> um there is this really weird thing that happens when you have a polarized culture and it happens in a lot of areas we can talk about politics or things like that but where you start to ramp up your polarized position and you start to caricature the other side. And then this other really weird thing happens is where in order to distinguish yourself from the other side, you almost start to caricature yourself. Mm. Right. And so I think that happens with, with PSA where you see some of these really conservative groups and I won't name any particular denomination, but they're going to places that do sound, in my view, crass and pagan and really reductionistic. Like, uh, I mean, I've had questions from people who are like, so why did you include any other models since you already talked about PSA, right? (laughs) 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 It's just like, to me, that's just like, okay, well, like if we're talking about the body, it's like, why do you need a head? You already have a heart, you know? (laughs) That's yeah. that's how it sounds to me. That's really reductionistic. It's not biblical. It's not in keeping with the great tradition of the church, right? But on the other extreme, there's this view that says that any view of Jesus bearing the penalty for human sin in our place instead of us is like divine child abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And I think that is equally crass and caricatured. It's not... Um, it's not something that you see. One of the things I do is I I walk through the church fathers and show how you can locate what I call mere penal substitution at several places in the early church fathers, right? Not everywhere, but in quite a few places, right? And that's because they were in tune with the scriptures, right? They they were doing exegesis, and um, we don't have to answer these questions exactly like they do, right? But I think we need to move past the kind of really partisan polarized caricatures on both sides and try to um, understand that there is a sense in which Jesus bears the penalty for human sin. And, um, you know, John three sixteen, really, you know, Super Bowl verse, right? <laughs> God, so, God so loved the world that he sent his son, right? So it wasn't that God so hated the world that he tortured his son. Right. Was that God, the one God, right? One God and three persons loves the world, and so there are some ways that we can talk about um, penalty bearing that I, that avoid some of these really crass divine child abuse uh, caricatures. I think we lost your. Uh... Audio, Josh, you froze on us. Marty, can you still hear me? Yep. Okay. We'll just wait a second. There you are. Cool. 
Sorry, I don't know what happened. No, you're good. You're good. We'll um, pick up your your uh, the last thing we heard um, was about uh, you started talking about caricatures. Yeah. Yeah, I just I think before we got cut off, it was just the idea that we can talk about Jesus bearing the penalty for human sin in our place without caricaturing it as some sort of divine child abuse or mm-hmm. without caricaturing it as this um, best and only model of atonement. I think there's plenty of space between those two extremes for mm-hmm. a biblical a biblical view. Yeah, I, I and and just to kind of along the lines of the my question along with uh, the feet um, is so I, I I was a worship pastor for five years mm-hmm. and uh, one of the favorites um, that people loved to sing um, and you know they would just do it the, people would sing it and like all their heart and soul was mm-hmm. Jesus paid it all mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's the bridge at the end of the Christian Stanfill modern version that says oh praise the one who paid my debt and raised mm-hmm. his life up from the dead mm-hmm. and so it's it's be, they really are actually beautiful words uh, yeah. and they and they and they are biblical uh, I mean mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with those words but I think the tendency for some people with those words is to reduce what happened on the cross down to a transaction. Yep. Um, yep. And, uh, and so my question for you is how can we, how can we take PSA and find the goodness in it and worship around that without mm-hmm. it turning into this? Well, Jesus paid for me because I've also heard pastors and people that are speaking come at a conference or something like that, I mean, literally use money as an example to describe what happened on the cross. <laughs> and I and, and and I think this I think this is where it turns into that crassness mm-hmm. that you're talking about yeah. because it's not it it was never meant to be a transaction in yeah. that type of way. So yeah. how, how can we how can we worship within PSA without it being reduced to that transactional thought process? Yeah. Well, I think Edward uh, Edward Irving, I think, talks about what he calls a stock exchange divinity. Mm-hmm. That's the exact monetary transaction view that you're talking about. And he's criticizing it. He's saying that's not what the cross is. It's not this sort of grotesque balancing of monetary accounts, right? Yeah. Um, but a, a few things to, to help with that, right? The first thing is, I think we need to recognize the meaning of metaphors, right? Yeah. When we use metaphors, um, first of all, metaphors are important and we should use them. But a lot of problems happen in theology when we try to when we over literalize our metaphors. We we press them too far, right? Yeah. Um, and so in this happens in atonement doctrine all the time. We press the metaphor too far and we end up with a really grotesque oversimplification. And so be careful not to press the metaphors too far. The second thing I would say is we need to reclaim the covenant as the context in which Mm. um, atonement makes sense. Okay. So covenant is the context, not the stock exchange. Uh, Covenant is the context, not this sort of pagan uh, venting of wrath, right? Uh, Covenant is the context, not... Um, sort of an abusive dad, right? In in the covenant, there were always uh, stipulations and there were always penalties or covenantal curses, right, that were um, a part of the ceremonies. So if you want to go back to Genesis, for instance, 
But there's this also this beautiful passage in Genesis where, where God passes between the pieces of these creatures, these animals, right? Mm -hmm. And what that is saying is that God has covenanted to take the penalty upon himself, right? And again, I keep coming back to the one God, but it's really important not to ditch the doctrine of the Trinity when we're talking about atonement. And that happens on both sides of this sort of polarized debate, right? Um, and so I would rather talk about God taking the covenantal penalty for sin upon himself than I would, and I would never, by the way, talk about the father, you know, venting his wrath on the son or the father, um, you know, being uh, sort of sort of separated from the sun, right? Because to do that is to deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's kind of a mm -hmm. big deal in Christian theology. Just a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, and I think, too, I, I think when we, when, we, when, we, when we reduce this down to the simple metaphor and go too far with it, mm -hmm. I think we also, we, we, we fail to see the significance of it because, you know, a transaction, you know, I give you this and you give me that, um, mm -hmm. is so common in our society and it's it's been common in society for thousands and thousands of years right um, and that's not what that was it wasn't just this simple okay i'll do this for you if you do this for me kind of right. thought process it was bigger and bolder and so much more significant than that yeah. and i think sometimes that metaphor although it you know on the very surface and, sim and simplistic level helps to understand like what some elements of this tend to look like mm -hmm. i think it reduces it in many people's minds that aren't necessarily thinkers or people that don't you know mm -hmm. say okay i'm going to go home and read the mosaic of, of atonement you know tonight you know or over this next week mm -hmm. you know this mm -hmm. takes it and people say oh okay great well it's just a transaction so when i teach yeah. my kids i'll teach them all right you give me five and i'll give you five singles and that's what happened right. on the cross yeah and kids walk around thinking that and sort of like josh mm -hmm. like you were saying they as they grow and as they begin to think this this thought process starts to become crass it starts to think like well why the heck would god do it like like it, it, it misses mm -hmm. so much it's this broad this broad brush yeah. that i think totally misses things so yeah i think that's important so and maybe if i could add just one more facet to help with that the yeah. kind of uh, so I, i've talked previously about understanding the limits of metaphors, secondly, reclaiming the covenant as the context, and then thirdly, holding on to the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth thing I would say is that we need to remember that Jesus is an active agent in atonement, right? Mm -hmm. He is not a child. <laughs> yeah. It's not, you know, to, to go back to the Talladega Nights quote, right? The Ricky Bobby, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a man. He had a beard, right? Yeah. <laughs> this this divine child abuse <laughs> meme, right? And it, it's it's a fair critique of some really crass views of atonement, right? So I want to recognize that it's it's helpful in that sense. Well, it, it forgets a really basic reality that he's not a child. He is an active agent in accomplishing the redemption of humanity. And um, so he one one theologian says that he takes hold of his cross like a king takes hold of his scepter, mm -hmm. right? This isn't a baby being, you know, hoisted up onto a sacrificial altar by a vindictive, abusive dad. This is a man, the second person of the Trinity, um, acting to redeem humanity, not just as a passive victim, but as a, 
as an active agent and actually as a king, right? The mm-hmm. rightful head of, of, of humanity. And so we don't pit different members of the Trinity against each other. Um, we don't forget that Jesus is an active agent, not just a, a passive victim. And, and I think that helps with some of these concerns over the way he bears our penalty. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll say one more thing and then we should uh, move on uh, from PSA. But uh, the the um, the story you told there in the beginning from, from Genesis uh, is something that was super, super helpful for me. Um, and I think that's where I started to see where this, where the PSA bit actually makes sense is only within that context of the covenant like you shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, I want to elaborate on that a little bit and please correct me if I, I misunderstand it. But basically like when, uh, like two Kings, for example, say like Marty and I, um, we'll pretend we'll be Kings for a day. Uh, <laughs> we're making nice. a covenant with each other. Um, we would like, this is violent, but like cut an animal in half or something like that, spread it apart. And then Marty and I, as a symbol of like, if you break this covenant, there's going to be consequences. We would walk through those two pieces of the animal together but what Mm -hmm. we see is that that's fair right yes okay Mm -hmm. and so then what we see in genesis though is god making a similar covenant but god is the lone one who walks through it is Mm -hmm. that right yes and so god is saying that when you guys mess up because hint you're going to um i'm going to be the one that that bears the penalty for that yeah to me that that is beautiful that makes sense as psa and that rids all the caricatures of their their power, the crassness. Um, and like I always cling to this idea, you know, people ask where where was God on, uh, you know, the day Jesus was was crucified. Um, and I think it it fits to say God was on the cross reconciling the world to Himself. Mm-hmm. And that version of PSA is the version of PSA um, that I think works. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's Genesis 15, right? That's the covenantal ceremony with Abraham. But, you know, I've just been reading in Jeremiah each morning just kind of for my devotions, which I've started to maybe regret it a little bit because it's a sort of, <laughs> during a global pandemic, it's a rough... Yeah, I bet. <laughs> a lot of like, you're all going to die. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's some really beautiful stuff in Jeremiah too, and um, as well. And um, one of the things he does is he actually references that ceremony and he explicitly references the the passing through the pieces of the animals as bearing the penalty for breaking the covenant, right? So he explicitly reinforces that that's the right way to interpret that. Um, and so this picture is of a God who is willing to take upon himself the penalty for his wayward people, not of a abusive dad who needs somebody to beat up, right? Because, I don't know his boss yelled at him or at work or something. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah. beautiful, man. Thank you so much. And that um, model then ties into what uh, for a long time has been, if I am allowed to be reductionistic uh, or when I am reductionistic, my personal favorite, uh, which has been Chris's Victor. Um, <laughs> but I think you did a super helpful job of showing how uh, not only the feet tie in uh, to the heart, but then how the feet and the heart tie in uh, to the head which is mm-hmm. what you have is Christus Victor. So what is uh, Christus Victor? Christus Victor is the idea that G- uh, Jesus triumphs over evil and over um, death and the devil 
And so it's this victory motif in atonement doctrine. And I actually call that the head because I think it is kind of like the crowned achievement of atonement. It's the telos or the goal towards which um, Jesus's um, vicarious humanity and his penalty bearing are headed, right? It's the, it's the, the goal. Um, and we see that, I think, for instance, in the book of Revelation, right, where mm-hmm. it's the lamb who is slain that is seated on the throne and who is victorious and ruling forever, right? So it's this image of triumph, of kingship, of victory. Um, and so I think that is the result both of Jesus's um, faithfulness on our behalf, there's the recapitulation piece, Mm -hmm. and his bearing of the covenantal penalty. The result is triumph or victory over death and the devil. And so that's why I call it the head of of my little uh, mosaic Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really good. I I like too how you talk about like uh, victory by way of penal substitution right mm-hmm. um because often i think the crisis victor model and the psa model are two that get pitted against each other um mm-hmm. and they kind of argue and i think um you see like two sides kind of forming there which to be fair um i have very much been guilty of that um although i always like kind of knew that wasn't quite right because mm-hmm. nt wright is my favorite theologian um and i've read like all of his stuff i don't know if you can see here. Yeah. <laughs> but um he he although he is very heavy on Christ's victor he never contrary mm-hmm. to popular belief pits them against PSA even though people right. blame him for that and right. however you phrased it differently uh, helped me to see that and actually helped me to understand right even better so uh, thank you for for that well thanks you know i i love i love tom and um I think he's been helpful on this as well. I think another thing to say about the it, the triumph by way of um, penalty bearing is that it's biblical, right? Mm-hmm. And we have some some passages, for instance, Colossians two fourteen and fifteen, that says that this this victory, right, this triumphing over the powers and authorities by the cross comes by way of the canceling of the the Greek word is the chirographon, the the note of legal indebtedness, right? Mm. That that was canceled or paid in full at the cross. So there you do get a metaphor of indebtedness or payment being used in Colossians, but not in a really crass way. And again, not pressing the metaphor too far, but yeah. Paul says in Colossians that 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 the canceling of that note of legal indebtedness, the chirographon, is the way in which Christ disarmed the powers and authorities mm-hmm. and and triumph. So, again, I think it's not just victory and penalty bearing, or victory instead of penalty bearing, but rather victory by way of his uh, faithful life and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Uh, The pieces are meant to fit together rather than be pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Marty? Well, I was going to ask my question, but go go ahead and continue on with your, uh, with where you were going to (laughs) go. Okay. (laughs) So, so I was going to say like, basically within this model, we see um, the idea is that, uh, 
death is um, kind of this, the, the problem that all of us humans uh, face. And uh, one of the things that Jesus overcame or has victory over is death itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, talk a lot uh, with my students about how, um, you know, sin, uh, was allowed to do its worst, uh, to Christ. That's kind of how I talk about it. Like, um, creation, the creation killing its creator kind of language or like sin being, uh, punished in the flesh of Christ is like a very biblical way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the powers of sin are broken the the evil in the world is overcome and defeated, mm-hmm. um, and it all sounds great, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, uh, especially, I mean, it's pretty evident amongst a global pandemic right now, mm-hmm. the world sure doesn't seem like evil has been defeated. So mm-hmm. what yeah. the heck? Yeah. Well, and, and we're recording this on Monday after Easter Sunday, yep. and uh, so... This year, Easter was a perfect picture of this paradox, right? Because we were all celebrating resurrection and the triumph of life over death separately so as to not kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a perfect picture of what it means to be living in um, this space between the ages, right? Um, between the resurrection of Christ and the consummation of the new creation is that we experience resurrection life in the midst of um, death. And uh, so I talk about it as a staged triumph, a staged triumph. And I don't mean that the victory was fake, Mm -hmm. that it was staged, right? I mean that the victory has stages and that there is a sense in which the final victory or the final consummation has not yet uh, fully arrived. And so, um, Matthew has this crazy weird story at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? Where it says that at the moment Jesus died, he gave up his spirit, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then it says the bodies of several holy people came to life in their tombs, right? But then it says, at least in the NIV, right? It says, that they didn't emerge to go walking about the city until Easter Sunday. Hmm. So there's this intervening period, Holy Saturday, right? Mm-hmm. Where these saints, uh, these holy ones, are apparently raised to life in their tombs, and then they have to just sit there. <laughs> <laughs> In the darkness, in a kind of holy quarantine, right? (laughs) Until they're released to walk about the city. And it's a weird Mm. passage, no matter how you slice it. It's like, this sounds like kind of an episode of The Walking Dead or something, Absolutely. (laughs) But but I think, man, that is a picture of what it is like to experience the power of the resurrection in the midst of a fallen world, right? Absolutely. You have been raised to Christ by the power of his breath, the spirit. The spirit given not just in Acts 2, but from the cross as well. But there is a sense in which we are waiting and um, surrounded by the the smell of death, right? Uh, just oh. like those saints were. But we yeah. experience new life as we await the, the final consummation. And, and so the victory has stages, and we don't want to over-realize eschatology by forgetting 
the the darkness that still exists um, mm. in the midst of the the victory. The already not yet kingdom. Yes. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, That's and you know, it's a good thing that Jesus could never possibly have coronavirus because you know him, bre- <laughs> him breathing on me um in today's day and age i don't want anyone breathing on me but uh it's a jesus i feel like i'm safe for that to happen <laughs> breathing on you you know giving you his body and blood the whole right. thing that's, that's right. <laughs> waiting to happen well you know uh I, I remember josh and i um josh and i have known each other for a while we used to work together uh in south florida and um you know, Josh is one of those people where, you know, he's at home and he's thinking and he'll like he'll I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll get a text from Josh and I'll say, hey, what do you think about this or this or this? Because he's just reading <laughs> stuff and he's thinking about it. And uh, I remember one time he called me up and I was doing the dishes and my wife and I were the kids were in bed. And uh, he said, hey, hey um, you know, he didn't say it in these exact words. So I, I, I realize I'm summation uh, his his argument. <laughs> um, but he said he essentially said, I don't believe that Satan is real um <laughs> which he did he, that's that wasn't actually what that's he was saying not, but not i like to I... make fun of him um but i think what one of the things with christus with with christus victor is a lot of people uh say this kind of like anthropomorphizes the visions of satan mm-hmm. um and so how do you respond to that and what's your thought process on that yeah well i have a whole chapter on the ontic status of yeah. the satan um, where I kind of just try to drill into who or what is the Satan, right? And we often do get that definite article, the, in the scriptures, ha-satan, right? The Satan. And so in some ways that word speaks to the devil's uh, role. He's the accuser, right? The accuser. And um, he brings accusations against the saints on the basis of our sinfulness, Right. And the problem is that the accuser has a point, you know, I am (laughs) sinful. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that's one of the reasons in which it's important to affirm, um, Jesus taking the, the sin of humanity, um, upon himself is that it remo- it removes the accuser's right to accuse because we are bound up with Christ. Mm-hmm. We're united with Christ. So what's true of him is true of us. Um, but to kind of come back to your question about the, the status of the Satan. Okay. I think, you know, there's, again, I'm, I'm continuing this theme of like, here's the two extremes, right? And then here's some ground in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, one extreme is I think, an excessive demythologization, right? To excessively demythologize the devil so that he is just this principle of evil, right? The dark side of humanity or the dark side of God, right? Um, And that's a problem because in the scriptures, as offensive as it might be to the modern mind, it does seem that there are these created beings called demons, right? Uh Who, Who do stuff. Right? They have volition, and Jesus casts them out, and they they speak through the people that they inhabit, right? And that's super uncomfortable for modern Western people like myself, who yeah, yeah. who think that sounds superstitious and unenlightened, and and uh, but I do think there is a sense in which people like myself need to get out, get over that, right? Yeah, um, that as a white modern Western person. 
I need to realize that my perspective is limited by all of those adjectives that I just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't want to excessively demythologize the devil just because it sounds weird to my modern Western um, academic mindset. But then the other extreme is this excessive fascination or this crass personalizing of the demonic where you you think of the devil as this power that's basically like equal to God in strength <laughs> right. and this creature that sort of flaps about the cosmos, maybe has horns and hooves and, you know, wears a red jumpsuit or something like that. <laughs> uh, and that's not quite right either. Um, right. It, it depends on how you define person if you're going to talk about is Satan a person, right? Um, Boethius, famous theologian says that a person is an individual substance of a rational nature individual substance of a rational nature and the word individual seems to be a little bit problematic there with regard to satan because the demonic seem to constantly be in search of and in need of physical entities with which to unite right Mm -hmm. we just don't encounter them flapping about the air Um, (laughs) we encounter them in the physical bodies of people and I think uh, somebody like Walter Wink, the guy that I interact with there, would say we encounter them incarnated in other entities, corporate boardrooms, right? Mm-hmm. The geopolitical, military, industrial complex of various mm-hmm. empires and nations become the incarnation of the dragon, if we want to use Revelation as a guide, right? The dragon gives his power to the beast, and the beast makes war against the peaceful people of God, right? Evil needs to be incarnate um, just as God chooses to be incarnate. Evil kind of needs to be incarnate. So I don't think of the demonic as these individual persons that flap about necessarily, but it does seem that the demons have things like volition, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. uh, they are real in that sense. Um, I also would take issue with their rationality, though. Um, Karl Barth famously um, speaks of evil as irrational, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is an irrationality to evil. And so it always bites off more than it can chew. And I think we see that with the demonic and with Satan, that um, Satan is not omniscient. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which he cannot understand the logic of sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. Um, and so even though the demons say to Jesus, we know who you are, son of the most high, they don't fully understand why he has come because they don't grasp the logic of sacrificial love. It's like the idea that, you know, to a liar, nothing is more inscrutable than the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If somebody is actually shooting straight with them, they just can't believe that because that's not their nature. Right. Um, and so is Satan a person? Now, my answer is it just depends on how you define that word person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't want to go down the road of excessive demythologization or excessive um, sort of uh, literality where we make Satan equal with God as this sort of doppelganger of, of God's uh, power and goodness. Yeah, and that, and, and to be fair, Marty, that's what I was pushing back against because right. we were reading yeah. this stupid book 
that like some radio <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being such a butt right now, but like this radio evangelist person put out like forever ago in like the eighties or something that we had to read as like a pastoral staff. And it was literally this idea that like Satan sits on the, you know, bar stool in your house and throws darts at you. And I was like, you're making Satan too powerful was my argument. I was like, you're making Satan seem like he knows everything, that he can be in multiple places at once, like all this kind of stuff. And then the pastor got really mad at me and was like, no, you don't think Satan is powerful enough. And that's your problem. That's the problem with millennials, blah, blah, blah. So to be fair, end of venting session. But what your words are very helpful. Thank you. (laughs) And I I was, Josh, I was going to clear that up that the, you know, it it was tongue in cheek, but I mean, the idea was that Satan, um, you know, sort of is a, I guess what Josh was trying to say is we give Satan too much credit. Mm-hmm. Um, that we say, you know, we, we teach, uh, we, we, we hear people say, oh, the devil made me do it, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, it's kind of like, well, hold on a minute, you know, let, mm-hmm. let's, let's own up on some of our own mistakes and issues mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so everything you just said, Josh, uh, really kind of fits really well. And then I guess my, my, my only other question is, um, what does this look like, uh, to worship in, in Christus Victor. And, and I think if you'll allow mm-hmm. me, I, I've, I think as I'm hearing you, um, to me, this sort of translates to worship as where we, we place our allegiance in mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd maybe want to hear that maybe more from you just to kind of see what that looks like in your mind. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, a friend of mine, Matthew Bates. Uh, he, ah, we love Matt. He's he was a good on the guy. Show. Yeah, he came and talked to us. You know, he sums up the gospel as the idea that Jesus is the saving king. Yeah. Right. And so I think what Christus Victor does is it it views Jesus as on the throne as the victorious and saving king. We don't just leave him on the cross as this suffering victim that knows our pain. Right. He does know our pain, but he is risen and ascended and seated on the throne of heaven. And so uh, Christus Victor allows us to worship the risen and ascended Christ in addition to the crucified and suffering um, servant. And um, I think it's it's a beautiful picture and also a, a really stern rebuke to the principalities and powers of this world that would say that in order to, you know, exercise power, you have to kind of become a, a dragon in order to defeat one. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what Jesus reveals is exactly what the book of revelation says that the lamb who is slain is seated on the throne. And that's why Christus Victor helps our worship and our ethics. If we're really honest, how we, how we live. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Well, thanks, Josh. And then uh, we'll hop on here to the the final uh, bit, which is um, the hands of Christ, which is Mm -hmm. moral influence, Mm -hmm. um, which is another, uh, you know, uh, favorite um, model of many people. Um, And so what what exactly is is this idea of moral influence? Yeah. um, Moral influence is the idea that Jesus uh, displays the love of God for creation, for God's creatures, mm-hmm. um, and shows us the heart of God. Uh, he shows us what love look, looks like. He shows us what the heart of God looks like so that we turn to God, right, rather than running from God 
in fear and dread. So he he shows us what love looks like and what God's heart looks like. Um, but I use the metaphor of the hands because I think there's sort of two facets to moral influence. And so I talk about, first of all, the beckoning hand of Christ, uh, where he gives us this perfect example of what humanity and love and obedience look like, and he beckons us to follow that example, right? Mm. Um, and the second one is the what I call the restraining hand, mm-hmm. and, and that is where he unmasks the sinful, violent power plays of this world and shows them in their true colors. Um, and, and they're both important, the beckoning hand, come and, and follow me, and the restraining, unmasking hand um, of moral influence. So moral influence uh, has been equated sometimes with liberal theology, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Jesus is just a good man who shows us how to be good people, right? And if we can just see a good example, then we'll be good too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the the crass version of it. And it's blamed on Peter Abelyard, a medieval theologian. And the idea is that he just thought that Jesus was a good example, right, Mm -hmm. for us to follow. But um, the trouble with Abelyard is nobody actually reads him, um, (laughs) (laughs) except for this one little quote taken out of context from his Romans commentary. Um, But if you actually do take time to read Abelyard, um, and there's some new editions of his stuff out now, you see that he didn't view Jesus as just an example, just, you know, just just an exemplar, right? He had uh, these other aspects of atonement that we've just been talking about, uh, including penal substitution, actually, as a part of his um, view of Christ as well. So I think if you take moral influence and you divorce it from these other models, um, and if you divorce it from the Holy Spirit, then it's a real problem. Right, mm-hmm. because it's this kind of uh, Pelagian approach that says that you know we we're capable of just following Jesus' example. If you know he just shows us how to do it, then we can then we can do it too. You know, mm-hmm. um, but that's not true. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who equips and enables and awakens and enlivens us to follow Christ, and the example of Jesus is crucially important once we connect it to these other uh, models as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I love about this too is um, you kind of take all these like real great theological concepts, the the hows and the whys and blah, blah, blah. And then within the hands, you kind of bring it all together and and remind us that atonement um, is not just a theory or an idea, but atonement is praxis. Mm -hmm. Right. And and the hands is, is such a perfect, you know, metaphor for that. Um, so I really like that bit. Uh, atonement is praxis. So can you just mm-hmm. ex- explain that a little bit um, for people? Yeah. Well, Paul talks about the idea that we have been made agents of reconciliation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that there is a sense in which the atoning work of Christ is something that he has passed on to us as his agents of reconciliation to um, make known in the world and to embody in the way we live in the world, right? So when I talk about atonement as praxis, it doesn't mean that we save rather than Jesus saving people, right? It certainly doesn't mean that we save ourselves, um, but it does mean that 
that the way we live as agents of reconciliation matters. Um, it actually connects to the Christus Victor piece um, because of, uh, you know, one of my, uh, one of the favorite youth group songs when I was growing up was uh, Romans 16, 19. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And you got to act it out. And the, yeah. the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And then you jumped up and said, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I used to do that. We used to do that. <laughs> so it's it's actually Romans sixteen twenty the part that so the song is a little wrong on those one part but um, that didn't go as well with the verse I guess Romans yeah. sixteen nineteen and twenty <laughs> and twenty um, <laughs> but what Paul's doing there is this really incredible bit of exegesis in theology because he's going all the way back to Genesis three fifteen and the proto evangelium. Right, the first preaching of the gospel, Genesis three fifteen, that says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Right, mm. and so what Paul does in Romans sixteen nineteen and twenty is that he does this crazy move where it's not just that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Jesus's feet, right, but Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, right, the feet of these. Roman house church Christians, slaves, free, right, gathered together in these little communities interspersed around Rome. He says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath their feet. And so the the, the final defeat of evil in some sense involves the transformed um, lives uh, of God's people. And you could say, I talk about this, the transformed souls, not S-O-U-L-S, not just that kind of soul, but souls, S-O-L-E-S, right? It's mm-hmm. the souls of our feet that are um, used by God to stamp out evil in the world by the power of the Spirit. So atonement as praxis is connected not just to us being more holy, but to the stamping out of injustice and uh, oppression and um, sinful ways of living in the here and now. Mm. Well, and I think too, like as we, as we, as as we're we're just getting on the other side of Easter, I think, you know, something my father-in-law used to say before he died all the time was, well, you know, if I, I'm, I'm kind of messed up, you know, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes in life. And so before, uh, before I ever come to church, I had to get myself kind of figured out first. Uh, you know, I gotta, I gotta take care of some of the, the immoral things I've done before. So essentially, what he's saying is, before I approach atonement, mm. I have to take care of me first, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's kind of been debunked by you know just about every preaching pastor on Easter <laughs> Sunday, um, you know, for for generations. You know that you know you know that's mm-hmm. that's not that's not something we really wrestle with if you think about it and mm-hmm. you start to understand atonement. But on the other side of it, uh, it is. And one of the quotes uh, a pastor, my pastor, said yesterday is that Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner Mm. Uh, Mm um and uh that that personally really resonated with me um Mm -hmm. just you know thinking about who i am because i'm Mm -hmm. on now i'm on the on the good side of atonement rather than (laughs) rather than on the opposite side Mm -hmm. but i still see that as this like wow like even though i'm still a sinner you know, mm-hmm. Jesus is still a better savior every single time. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I'm kind of thinking through that aspect of this. Uh, and I know that's kind of like, again, that's a little bit simplistic on that uh, as far as, you know, when we're looking at this. But I'm trying to think of how does 
how does the moral influence side how can that be articulated to somebody as a as a means of atonement who maybe hasn't thought about these kinds of things or is maybe on that side of it where they kind of are in this like this mm-hmm. rut of like well I'm you know sort of like uh, the worm theology you know I'm this terrible yeah. this yeah. terrible person and you know I couldn't possibly approach the throne I couldn't possibly approach atonement yeah. uh, until I kind of fa- how how can that be articulated to someone like that yeah, man, that's a good question. Again, I think it's helpful to recognize that there's two sides of the horse that we can fall off of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can fall off on the worm theology side that says, oh, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner, and I'm not even worthy to um, come before Jesus yet to ask forgiveness until I get myself cleaned up, right? Uh, in yeah. which case, of course, none of us would ever come, right? Yeah, at all. <laughs> Then the other side is Pelagianism that thinks, well, I'm actually pretty awesome and I don't really necessarily even need to repent of anything, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know both... somebody who said that one time. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Heard that <laughs> <laughs> We're not going there. Sorry. Continue. They're both, uh, they're both wrong. They're both yeah. just disastrously wrong. And um, so how do you get past that? Well, I mean, some of the things we've been talking about previously help with that, right? The, the, the deepest truth about your humanity is not that you are a dirty, rotten, worthless sinner, right? The de- that's, I mean, that's totally true. <laughs> you are a sinner, right? But the deepest truth is that you are a creature made in the image of Christ and loved by God. And if that weren't true, then you wouldn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the very fact that you exist is a testimony to the love of God and the image of God implanted within you. And that goes all the way back to recapitulation, right? The true humanity um, is lodged in the incarnate son, not just the dirt, right, Mm -hmm. that we were made out of, um, so to speak. So it's important not to to fall off either side of that, that horse. And then the other thing I would say it's super important is the Holy Spirit is involved in every step of the way in the work of atonement, right? So we often talk about atonement as the work of Christ, right? And that's true, but it is not the work of Christ alone, right? It is the work of Christ through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so even though that I am totally incapable of even saying yes to Jesus on my own, it's the Spirit at work, right, within me and around me that enables me to say that Jesus is Lord, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that someone is even concerned about their sinfulness, as you mentioned, your your father-in-law, um, the fact that they even are concerned about it or aware of it is the evidence that the Spirit is doing a work within them. Yeah, right. And I think the other thing that's needs to be said about the Spirit is the Spirit is not content to just leave us where we are, right? Sanctification and transformation is a real thing Mm -hmm. according to the scriptures. That doesn't mean that we um, just will never sin. We're not going to sin anymore that we can get all like prideful, you know, um, but it does mean that we can experience growth, transformation. We can be made new, um, not by our own power, but by the power of the the spirit. Mm -hmm. There's a song, um, that uh, Hillsong United actually put out recently. Uh, I'm just pulling it up right now. Uh, it's called As You Find Me. 
Uh, and the idea behind the lyrics is that um, God finds us in a lot of places. He finds us in the, you know, the first, the opening lyric is I've been strong and I've been broken within a moment. Mm. Um, and that Jesus kind of finds us there in both of those places when we've been strong, when we've been, when we've been broken, mm-hmm. uh, and the bridge, uh, they repeat the, the words, your love's too good to leave me here. Mm. Um, and, uh, I remember the first time I heard that song, I had never heard the lyrics. I'd never heard the song. I hadn't read the lyrics. I hadn't seen any part of it. And uh, as I listened to that song, I just began weeping, you know, mm-hmm. because those words are so true. Uh, just as you're saying, God doesn't, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't want to leave us wallowing in our, our sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Holy Spirit also doesn't want us to, he, he doesn't want to leave us in this position of, well, like I've got plenty of money. I've got a good job. I've got a great mm-hmm. family. I got a nice house. So hey, I guess I'm set. Mm-hmm. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be left there, but instead God is always constantly renewing and constantly moving us towards this next great thing and towards the next thing that he has for us. Um, and so those lyrics just really began to resonate with me um, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, so, yeah, everything you just said, that that really kind of fulfills a lot of that thought process and that for me, um, because I, I think this is an important aspect of atonement, uh, just kind of wrestling, like you mentioned, with our own humanity, wrestling with our own uh, brokenness, but also wrestling with our, you know, Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be pious? And maybe I'm not very pious at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe I have a too high a view of myself, and Jesus needs to renew that as well. So mm-hmm. that that was all great. Yeah, thanks. Sweet. Well, Josh, this has been uh, an awesome conversation. I really um, have enjoyed it, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you for you know taking time uh, to come and talk to us. And um, you know, I know things are crazy right now with it being Easter Monday, but also. COVID-19 is a thing. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for uh, for your work, man. Uh, seriously, I know this is going to be a resource uh, that I return to time and time again. So uh, thank you for that. Um, and just, I just have one final question, oh. Josh, before, sure. before we... Who is your who is your favorite Gordon Conwell professor? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> okay, man, that's going to be tough. Um, well, I was there... I don't know when when you were there, Marty, but I was there from 2004 to 2006. Okay. Yep. When when were you there? Uh, 2012 to 2014. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, one of my favorite professors was was Rick Lentz. Okay. Yep. And he taught theology. And uh, I'll tell you why. It wasn't because necessarily I thought he was the best lecturer, um, but he, you know, he's a hardcore Presbyterian, <laughs> hardcore uh, Calvinist, and he was just so utterly kind to me and encouraging to me as mm. this one, like, because I come from the Wesleyan tradition, there aren't like a ton of Wesleyans, at least there weren't in that day at Gordon-Conwell. I was yeah. like, they're like, what are you? You're from yeah. what? Like, <laughs> so, um, but Rick was so kind to me and encouraging to me, and um, that was really a great experience for me to be exposed to diff- a different tradition of the church, which is part of the reason I went there, to just be exposed to different theological traditions, right, and a different mm-hmm. geographical uh, location, you know, in the yeah. country. So uh, Rick was was super encouraging to me, and uh, so I, I appreciated his, uh, his influence on me when I was there. I'm just trying to whet Josh's appetite for seminary, and I'm trying to encourage <laughs> him to go to Gordon-Conwell. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I, I had I had Garth Rosell for many classes because uh, mm-hmm. I took I was really going a history route yeah. and also Gwen, Gwen Adams, uh, yeah. two of yeah. like two awesome awesome professors. Yeah. Uh, the best part about Gordon Conwell was if he took any classes on Puritanism, you could go to the actual sites within yeah. like a a twenty minute drive from where we were. So, yeah. Josh, I'm pushing you, man. Gordon Conwell's the place. <laughs> and for me, I was there. I was there under like an Assemblies of God denominational standpoint. And so, uh-huh. like you, there were not a lot of AG people, yes. or really a lot of <laughs> a lot of charismatics in really any of my classes. There's like one AG church within the area, yeah. Um, and like that's where we went. <laughs> so yeah. like we were pretty much the only ones. Um, but yeah, it's it's always nice to you know. There's a there's actually a pastor locally to where I am right now um, who graduated I think a year after I did, and he mm. went to do other things, and now he just took a, a senior pastorship at a church near here. Um, so it's kind of cool. It's a it's a it's a small fraternity of of awesomeness. Uh, whenever you come across one. Well, you know, I've been impressed by. <clears throat> Just how many really, how many scholars have come out of there just in the class that I kind of graduated with or around? Mm. Uh, people like Nijay Gupta and Esau Macaulay. Yeah. And um, Mark Catlin and all seminary professors or, you know, Bible or theology professors. And um, so it, 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 I think it does have a disproportionate influence within the academy for the size of the school itself. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it was uh, a big culture shift going to Boston from uh, Oklahoma, but sure. uh, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, definitely. Right. Sorry for that offshoot, Josh. I just I no, had to ask. You're good, and I, I guess <laughs> when my question though is when is Gordon Conwell going to send us money for doing that advertisement? That's. What <laughs> <laughs> I don't think seminaries have any money these yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, so you, that that was great. I, I know Gordon Conwell is a, a good school. I have I've looked um, into so Wesley Theological Seminary uh, in DC is actually super close to where I work. Um, mm-hmm. I was there recently actually talking with some professors, um, and then I also I really like Northern, uh, but that's because they boast you know Scott McKnight and mm-hmm. Greg Boyd and David Fitch, yeah. uh, three people I really enjoy. So I don't know. Something. Well, Nietzsche, Nietzsche Gupta is moving there, I believe, to oh, start sweet. in the fall. So he'll awesome. be there with Scott as well. And uh, yeah, Nice. Dope. All right. Well, stay tuned, people. Maybe I'll end up in seminary somewhere. Um, <laughs> but for now, again, Josh, this has been awesome. Thanks for uh, taking 90 minutes of your day and hanging out with us today. Um, we'll be sure to link uh, your book in the show notes so people can find that. Um, but is there anywhere else you would like to direct people where they can find you or something like that? Sure, they can uh, they can follow my blog. If uh, I, I blog, it's a little bit more popular level, and okay. so it's not super academic, but it's just my name, joshuamcnall.com. So just J-O-S-H-U-A-M-C-N-A-L-L.com. And uh, I try to post on there um, fairly regularly, and uh, that's, a, that's a resource as well. Sweet. Well, sounds good, man. And uh, again, thank you for this. Hopefully, uh, you know, maybe we could do it again sometime. Or if you ever hang out at things like uh, SBL or AAR, um, that's a fun place, too, that I yeah. uh, like to stick my nose in. So maybe we could meet up there sometime. Sounds good. I hope to see you guys. Yeah. Sweet, man. Take care. All right. Thanks, guys. Go Cavs. <laughs> Go Blackhawks. <laughs>